Hello, hello. How's everyone doing today? I keep confusing my days because usually not in church every night, so I keep thinking, is it Saturday night? Is it Sunday night? <laughs> so happy Sunday night to you. I heard uh, fall started. Was it like one, someone said at one? Was it one o six or it was like a crazy time like that? I was asking my husband. Why, why is that? He's like, I have no idea. But somehow, in the middle of the afternoon, we had fall. So welcome to fall, <laughs> which is still 92 degrees in Florida. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> All right, so yesterday we talked about God, how God continually chases after us and the extremes that he will go to to let us know how much he desires to live among us. But each of us have a unique journey toward God. And so no journey looks like another person's journey. See, the beautiful thing about a relationship with God is that he speaks to us in a unique, personal way and in a way that we can understand, right? We're not robots, and so he doesn't treat us as such. As parents of multiple kids, if you have two or three kids or more, then you probably understand this better than anyone else. The way you communicate with one, it's not the way you're going to communicate with the other. And that's just a fact. It doesn't matter how many, kids, how many kids you have. Each kid will have different, um, each kid is going to be different than the other. And the challenge as a parent is to learn how to communicate with that kid in a way that he or she will understand how you love that, that kid and and what you want that kid to understand in a way that it resonates with that kid that may not resonate with another. So in the same way, God communicates with each of us in specific ways, in ways that will resonate with each person. And there's a story in the Bible, a very well-known story, but probably one of my favorite in the, in the Bible, that depicts very clearly how someone can experience this individualized care from Jesus. And she was living in a, a life of disappointment. She was lonely. She felt neglected. And probably a lot of regret. But in, in the thick of her struggles... She came face to face with Jesus. So we're going to go to John 4. Is this working? John 4, verses 1 through 8. There it is. <clears throat> it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, Though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed, and I want you to make a mental highlight there, he needed to go through Samaria. 
So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sakar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat, another mental note there, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So let's just stop there for now. So the passage begins telling us that Jesus and his disciples were in Judea. And they were doing ministry and baptizing. Now John the writer is very careful to tell us the disciples are the ones doing the baptism. And why is this? What's not hard, it's hard to tell why Jesus is not the one do, uh, performing the baptism. But we can speculate that this is due to several reasons. So perhaps he was training the disciples to do this um, because he knew this is something that was going to be part of their ministry in the future. Or he was perhaps empowering them to let them know that this is going to be something they will do. Or perhaps Jesus preferred not to baptize so that those that would be baptized by Jesus couldn't claim that this was some sort of superiority or, or something they could claim over someone else's baptism. Either way, the point is Jesus and his disciples are do, doing ministry, and they're busy doing ministry in Judea. But Jesus begins to sense that the Pharisees are coming after him. And they're coming after him full force. They do not like how many followers Jesus now has. And they feel very threatened by Jesus, right? And so Jesus knows it is not time for the cross yet. And therefore, it's time to hit the road. There's still ministry to be done. So they head back to Galilee. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Galilee was made much shorter if one were to cross through a small town called Samaria. However, fervent Jews, these are devout Jews, would always avoid this route, even though it added, the other route added a lot more to their travels. Now, remember, there were no cars back then, and many of the people did not even have a donkey or a horse. So this was serious walking, and any shortcut was valuable. But still, the Jews despised Samaritans and did not trust them. So the story goes that when Babylon seized the southern kingdom of Judah, they took captive almost everyone in the country. However, they left behind the lowest classes of society because the Babylonians didn't want, to didn't want to deal with the poor people. And so those who were left behind intermarried with other non-Jewish immigrants. And eventually, the region of Samaria was formed. They were considered a hybrid religion, if you will. 
mixing the law of Moses with other unique interpretations of other cultures and religions. Therefore, the Jews had zero respect and tolerance for them. They did not consider them a pure religion. So Samaritans were those people who diluted or in their minds, according to the Jews, corrupted the law of Moses and therefore they had no time for them. The Samaritans even had their own temple on Mount uh, Gerasim, but the Jews burned it down circa 128 BC. So obviously this made for even worse interactions between the Jews and the Samaritans. But Jesus says, I need to go through Samaria. And the disciples probably found this very, very strange. But it didn't matter, right? That did not matter. Jesus still decided, I need to go through Samaria. And the disciples probably liked the idea of less walking, right? So Jesus sends them to fetch for lunch, and then he stays behind all by himself. Now this is interesting for many reasons. And I count three reasons why this jumped out at me. One is only men who were looking for women of questionable morals went to this particular well in the middle of the day. According to scholars, this would have been about the noon hour. And women would never, would never ever go to that well at noon and never by themselves. They came much earlier during the day when it was cooler and always in groups. And of course the irony is that Jesus did come to meet a woman of questionable morals and questionable reputation, but not for evil or selfish intentions, but to offer her hope and a future. The second thing that jumped at me is Jesus is the living water. He says so himself later on in the story. So uh, he did not need water from anyone to satisfy his own thirst. But Jesus holds back with great restraint in order to minister to this woman. The best way to break the ice with her, he knew, was to ask her for a drink of water. He knew that would catch her attention immediately. And the third thing is, because this woman shows up alone at an unusual time, it gives the impression that she is either trying to hide from someone, or she is already an outcast in her own community. So needless to say, an outcast in the most outcast of any society at the time, that is as, as low as you can possibly get. So it was a well-known fact at, at the time that rabbis did not speak to any woman in public. Any woman, and that included wife, sister, daughter, and definitely not a woman at the well at the noon hour. Some rabbis would even close their eyes, true story, if a woman was coming in their direction. That's 
how specific they were about this. And we've already mentioned how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. So the fact that Jesus would ask a favor of a Samaritan woman was unheard of. Insanity, really. So even the disciples were shocked at this when they returned. In verse 27 of that same chapter, they said they marveled that he would talk with a woman. That alone was enough to astonish the disciples. But here's Jesus again, breaking with the Pharisees' ridiculous traditions and biases. Teaching the disciples, by example, that everyone is equally loved by God. And that no race is better than another. So let's continue and go now to verse 9. It says, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? Is this working? Because I keep clicking it. I don't know if it's, it is. Okay. When the woman heard the words living water, she assumed that Jesus was talking about a spring of water which I think that's still pretty common to today, right? So to her people, living water referred to a body of spring waters as they appeared to be alive because they were bubbling. In the Old Testament, however, Jehovah was sometimes referred as the fountain of living water. And of course, that's what Jesus is referring to. But it appears, though, that whatever understanding she has of what Jesus has just said piqued her interest. And maybe because she doesn't want to come alone to this uh, well anymore or face the criticism of other critical eye, or maybe she's beginning to understand this conversation is taking a spiritual turn, but something is stirring inside of her. So let's continue now to verse 12. The woman says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his son and his livestock. So at this point, she can tell there is something special about this man, but hasn't yet figured it out. Jesus is patient, yes, but he does not water down the message. So let's see what happens next. Jesus answered to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman, and the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. 
So she still does not understand what Jesus is really offering. All she wants is to never have to come to that well again. Her deepest wish at this point is to not have to face criticism or dirty looks or that uh, judging undertones that she probably heard on her way to the well. All the things coming to this well at noon represents. She is just desperate for another option, any option that would add a sliver of joy to her pretty wretched existence. Jesus realizes this and begins to take a more direct approach. So now we look at verse 16. He says to her, go call your husband and come here. Hmm. So of course he already knows that she has no husband. And she's been sleeping around, in fact, for a long time. Why would he say that then? That seems kind of rude, doesn't it? But to her, in her culture, in her context, a man speaking to another woman in public without her husband present was just not acceptable. So really, this was not a strange question for her at all. So the woman has to then admit in verse 17, I have no husband. Ha, but now we're getting somewhere, right? Now Jesus is able to confront her lifestyle head on and her sin. And so she, he says to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you have spoken truly. So Jesus knew her lifestyle, and that needed to be addressed in order for her to make an honest decision. So now she can address her sin, she can be very clear about it, and then she can make the decision whether she will now follow God or Will she continue to keep sinning? So we've seen, we've seen in the Bible that Jesus approached different people in even more different ways. Some he spoke with tenderness, some with firmness, and with the Samaritan woman now, she, he is being very, very direct. And perhaps that was the only way to reach her soul. We can see in this in the next verse that's coming up, that Jesus is saying to what, she, what he is saying to her, it's hitting a nerve in her. And so now she begins to understand. She begins to understand. So clearly Jesus is using the right approach. So now let's move on to verse 19 and 20. She replies, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this very mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So here, she brings up the continual conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. But Jesus did not take the bait. He was not about to have a political debate with this woman. There were greater matters to discuss. And so in verse 29, we see his response. Woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is an incredible revelation by Jesus. This is a deep theological speech that Jesus just gave her. The kind of discussions that rabbis have behind closed doors at the temple. Jesus made a drastic distinction between the way Samaritans worship and the Jews. He literally used the term you versus us. And he didn't do it to be mean, but to be clear. And to clearly denote the differences in worship. Scholars have, denote, have noted that the Samaritans had a fusion of beliefs, as we mentioned earlier. Many of them not biblical. They included some parts of the Old Testament, but then left some others and ignored the others. Their religion had become a hodgepodge of whatever they wanted to include. And so if they didn't feel like including something, it didn't make it into their religion. And so God had to reveal to her that that was not acceptable that their religion was out of convenience. So Jesus was telling her very clearly that she had to choose whom she would believe and whom she would follow. Because soon it would not matter whether you were Jew or whether you were Samaritan. And the most important thing is which God you would choose to serve. So this was an incredible revelation to her. And she understood every word. Jesus knew her heart was receptive to the message. He used a clear message and he knew that the message would resonate with her. He spoke her language, not in dialect, but her spiritual language. And so now this is what she responds in verse 25. I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Can you just picture Jesus' face at this point? I can just picture him smiling and looking straight into her face with delight. She got it. She got it. And so he simply responds in verse 26. I who speaks to you, I'm he. Mm. What an encounter. What an amazing conversation. He did not back down from what he wanted to share with her. And he helped her understand clearly the message that he had for her that day. 
Jesus spoke truth into her life and now turns her not, not only into a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, but now she becomes an evangelist because she goes back to her people. And now she is no longer ashamed of her story. She is no longer afraid of the looks, the judging, the criticism. Now she cannot wait to share with them what she has just experienced with Jesus. What an amazing encounter. She is eager to share the good news. The Messiah, the one she learned when she was a little girl in Sabbath school, he himself came and talked with her. He came and talked with her. She had just had a private session with the Savior of the world. And she just has to share it with everyone. There's a story of a family whose house caught on fire. And as each parent tried to grab whatever little belongings they could, you know, maybe a few treasure pictures or uh, maybe some paperwork or something of value, and then the hand of a little one, and they ran out the door. But the little girl that daddy was holding the little girl insisted and slipped away from daddy and went upstairs because she just had to get her little teddy bear. And so when trying to come down again, she found herself trapped in the fire and in the middle of the flames. So she ran up and down and started shouting for her dad to catch her and her, dad, her daddy shouted up to her, jump down jump down but the little girl could not see her father and so he she kept saying daddy i cannot see you i cannot see you to which he would respond honey jump down i see you i see you and so today that is the message that jesus says to you you may find yourself enveloped in flames you may find yourself lost in a world that is criticizing you that is looking you down that is judging you but God says I see you I see you and I will go out of my way to meet with you I see you look 531.32 says, Jesus, answer them. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. And this was in response to Pharisees who were criticizing him for spending way too much time with sinners, which is ironic, right? Because every one of us is a sinner. So Jesus came to rescue sinners. And he says to us tonight, I see you. Even in the mess you find yourself in, I see you. And I will go out of my way to meet with you.
Let's stand and pray. Our gracious Father, Lord, we are so thankful that no sin can ever separate us from you, Lord, that you came and conquered sin and conquered death and conquered evil so that we can have the hope and the future that you want us to have, Father. So today, Lord, we claim that promise that you came to rescue those who are sick and not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And so today, Lord, I will be the first to say, I am a sinner and I need you. I need your rescue, Father, every day, every hour. I need you, Father. And so I want to jump into your arms tonight because I know you see me, Lord. And may that be our prayer every day of our lives. Come and rescue us, Lord. We cannot have, we cannot wait to have a conversation with you at the well. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. We'll